Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the Rough Trade Books Club. It is the, God, I've even forgot what month it is. It is May. the May, it's the May edition. Thanks, Nina. It's the May no edition. And I'm joined as ever by um, Nina Hervey, the boss of Rough Trade Books, the busiest woman in publishing. Hi, Nina. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good. How are you, Matthew? Um, yeah, I'm very good. And you are next to you is your right-hand man, um, Will Burns, I'm hoping. Is he there? Yep. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm good. And we have with us two amazing guests. So we have oh Anna Wood with us. Amazing. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, more, more, which is published by the Indicate Press. We also have with us Leonie Ross, who has written a um, staggeringly imaginative and great novel called This One Sky Day. Um, and why did you pick that? Why is it just because you love to hear it again, or is there any particular reason it relates to your book? Um, I mean, God, there is. I mean, there isn't a better song. I don't think. <laughs> oh, <okay>. It's so. It's so. Um, oh, I'm not going to do it justice. The way it starts and then it keeps going. It never quite. It goes back to the same place again, but it also keeps moving forward. He doesn't start singing till maybe two thirds of the way in. I'm not sure halfway, two thirds of the way through. Um, each player has their moment, you know. It's just the structure of the song and the feeling behind it. It's just, it's extraordinary. So the second to last, the second to last story in your book is called "Sex in New Orleans," mm-hmm. which is one of one of the longer, um, longer pieces in the book. Yeah. Um, have you been to New Orleans? Is it a place? I've that been you to know New Orleans about? a couple of times. I'm going again later this year if I can get there. Um, I love New Orleans and. Sex in New Orleans is actually, uh, as you might be able to tell in various ways, based on was originally based on Death in Venice. <laughs> right. And um, so I started off writing it by um, reading three versions of Death in Venice, two two translations and, and the original um, German, even though I don't speak German. So I would read I'd read a, I'd read a paragraph in one of the English translations, then I'd read the same paragraph in the older English translation. And then I'd read the same paragraph in the German. Um, and then I'd have a think about that. And then I'd write my paragraph. <laughs> and it started off like that. Very uh, slow, strange process. Weirdly enjoyable, right. as well as awful. Um, and then over a number of uh, months, it became, uh, rather than becoming a world-changing novella it became a slightly weird long story long short story um about a woman who goes to new orleans and 
meets a young, beautiful man there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love that story. Am I allowed to say that about my own story? Oh, yeah. how wonderful. <laughs> say it, claim it. Totally. <laughs> it's the best thing to do. Have you tried that technique before? No, and I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she's running away from her own joy. No. But I, no, I mean, I, I, um, I'm really, I'm interested in like new versions of things, cover versions, right. the fact that stories don't just get beamed out of the universe into your brain, you know, yeah. um, and the processes by which we create them and where they come from. So, uh, and I'm also interested in things that I sort of love, but don't also don't really love like I don't I, I like Death in Venice but I don't think it's all that you know <laughs> so um yeah there was a lot going on with that one no I just read it in German but I don't think it's all that <laughs> <laughs> I read three different versions of it <laughs> well, how did you... it was it was a, it was a really interesting process I like I I um that's probably one of the closest things I've had to what Leonie was just describing about really going into somewhere for a while and then coming out and thinking, oh, where have I been, you know? Because, um, right. but um, it was, yeah, you get, it's quite an intimate process and, um, and weirdly else, satisfying. <laughs> what else did you consider doing it with anything else? Like were there other pieces, films or books that you thought you considered using this kind of technique with or not? No, there's, so there's, 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 there's the kind of, um, there's all kinds of ancestry, I would say, in this book. So there's lots of things that I've taken from other places, like Chronicle of a Baffled Spinster. The title is from um, a, one of my favourite collections, short story collections called Great Jewish Short Stories. Right. Um, and the Chronicle of Baffled Spinster is a like there's a subtitle of one of the stories in there. I'm just trying to see if I can find it. I love my... your titles; they're so much fun, and they just <laughs> <laughs> they're so declarative and kind of confident. And well, I'm I'm just I'm yeah. It's like you're about to have an experience. Kind of every mm. single one of them says, "Ta da!" It's, yeah. it's the it's the thing of like what happens if you just tell everybody everything as clearly as you can. You know, because because there's still going to be more there. You know, like there's always um, God. There's a great quote about this that I can't remember, but it's to do with mystery. You know, and however much you try to say everything as clearly um, and honestly and openly as you can, there's always going to be more behind it that you can't get to. Yeah, um, and there's something sort of thrilling about that, I think, and and moving. Um. Yeah, the Chronicle of Baffled. <laughs> Actually, I've just realised I changed it. So there's in this amazing book, Great Jewish Short Stories, edited by Saul Bellow. It's a lovely little, um, is it a pan edition? No, it's a Dell, old Dell book. Um, and in it, there's a story called My Aunt Daisy and uh, by Albert Halper. And it was described by Alexander Woolcott as the Chronicle of a Baffled and a Desperate Spinster. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And it's and that's not what it is. It's a great story. <laughs> um, but I, I like that turn of phrase. So I, um, I nicked it. So yeah, my whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think some of it comes back to what you were saying before about the difference between personal feelings and rage at a structure in a system, mm. and how they interact. Um, and then there's all kinds of bits and pieces. There's bits of poems in the in the book. Uh, 
Lauren, our path emerges for a while. Our path emerges for a while comes from um, the Days of Wine and Roses poem. And then there's a bit in, there's a bit of Proust in the story about Proust, although it's yeah. probably hard to spot it now. So I feel like there's this sort of ancestry, like there's this kind of range of mountains behind me and then I'm sort of standing in front of them and trying to look as big as they are. Hmm. <laughs> Beautifully put. Beautifully put. <laughs> okay, so let's listen to Dr John then, which is your uh, third bit of music. I'm sounding a bit like um, Desert Undis here. Um, <laughs> so this is Everybody Want to Get Rich Right Away. <laughs> So, um, Will, what have you got for us poetry-wise this month, and what are you going to? What poem are you going to talk about? Well, I was going to um, talk about a poem by Kaio Chingonyi um, from his first book, Kumukanda. Um, Kaio's actually got a new book. Um, I don't know if it's out now or out shortly, but um, my, my, a copy has has not been forthcoming from my usual sources so I, so I thought I'd go back to his to his first book his poet I really love um and yeah this first this first book was an incredible um work and uh I, I chose the poem because I thought it sort of spoke um in 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 some similar ways to Anna's stories uh about um the, the you know the, the presence of music in in literature um but then you know that and that that there's, there's also this idea we've spoken about it before and i thought the only's book um it, it, this idea resonated with that which is you know um this idea that that of of what is accessible thematically when 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 you're writing um you know what 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 is the proper subject matter or or what is the proper way of handling subject matter um and so, I mean, I'll read the poem, and you'll 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 see why this might 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 twenty years ago have felt like a a a, a, a kind of subject that not fitting for poetry, but but I think ultimately is. Um, the poem's called "Guide to Proper Mixtape Assembly." The silence between songs can't be modulated by anything other than held breath. You have to sit and wait time the release of the pause button to the last tenth of a second so that the gap between each track is a smooth purr a tdk or memorex your masterwork don't talk to me about your mp3 player how given the limitless choice you hardly ever listen to one song for more than two minutes at a time do you know about stealing double a's from the tv remote so you can listen to last night's clandestine effort on the walk to school you say you love music have you suffered the loss of a cassette so gnarled by a tape deck's teeth it refuses to play the beat you've come to recognise by sound and not name? Have you carried the theme in your head these years in the faint hope you might know it when it finds you in a far-flung cafe as you stand to pay, frozen, and the barista has to ask if you're okay? So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think uh, Kayo has utilized that kind of um you know a, a sort of folk process really uh of a, a musical folk process which people of a certain age i suppose all all recognize the making of a mixtape um 
and um yeah i just th- you know i think it's a sort of radical reclamation of of um pop culture into something that becomes high literature it effortlessly becomes high literature in uh Kyo's hands because he's a because he's a fine poet and um and you know some of the ways it does that is is, is that, it, that it that he finds a way of coming to a kind of epiphany at the end of the poem but it's not an easy epiphany it's not the kind of epiphany that 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 um that that, that weakens some poetry because the it's an it, it's an epiphany that's based on absence based on loss a kind of loss of memory a loss of 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 this song that has somehow seeped into somewhere between memory and the the actual fact of the person um person's existence you know those songs that 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 we get almost in our dna um so yeah i i just think it's uh, i think it's wonderfully done um but what i also like about it is um chingoni's uh young poet um uh, you know sort of outrageously cool um person make you know musical uh artist as well as as well as a poet just one of those people who seems to be able to, to do lots of different things but and but it, it, with with that he manages to get quite a lot of the sort of grumpy old bugger into the speaker's voice here and i'm always a sucker for a fellow grumpy old bugger in poetry really um and so yes, so you know, I love that kind of slightly antagonistic. You know, you say you love music, or don't talk to me about your MP3 players. You know, um, yeah, I think it. I think it it, it. it does very interesting things with, um, with the with the speaker's point of view, um, and and there's something about that period in your life where music does become a sort of antagonistic thing. Oh, you say you like music. Let me tell you how much I like music, um, and uh, yeah, it sort of carries all that. Um, but with a, with a wonderful musicality of its own as well, you know, the handling of language is beautiful. It does a time travelling very well too. Like it mentions TDK and Memorex, and then it mentions Barista. Yeah, yeah. And the era, the era when I was thinking about TDK and Memorex, the word Barista hadn't happened to me yet, you know? Yeah. I love that idea of a word happening to you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Memorex is a great word anyway, isn't it? You know, you just like, you'd be tempted to put it in every poem that you wrote if you could. But yeah, it's, it, and, and actually, yeah, he uses the phrase far flung in that line about about the cafe. And, you know, yeah. he could mean, he could mean geographical or, or sort of temporally far flung. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely there. Um, but yeah, he, uh, you know, he's a, he's a master and probably not much more need, needed, need, needs to be said go get his new book what um i'm gonna ask you one more question then and so what technically what's he doing with language in the poem that falls into the kind of you know things we talked about in the past about how poetry works the nuts and bolts well, i mean uh, what, what's interesting is on the page you know you can't you can't necessarily see it although you you, you, may, you may if you, you you may have heard it in the reading that i'm not i'm not <clears throat> pretending to be a master of the of the reading of poems um but but the, the 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 poems actually set in a kind of block of prose really that that that, that sort of i mean you know it might be a, a stretch perhaps to say that it, it mirrors the, the the shape of a tape black kind of 
rectangle on the on the page. Um, so there's there's a kind of element of play there in the typesetting, which which you know might 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 instantly pull the reader in a certain direction. Um, and then you know there was there's there's little rhymes within that though, aren't there? So you know the last um, the last line you've got pay and okay, which um, have this kind of rhyme um, that that seem to somehow link the words in the reader's ear. Um, and and that's quite an interesting idea, isn't it? Pay and okay, you know what 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 you know we were talking earlier about the you know the the, the nature of capitalism and what what might what might the poet be saying when when they're linking those two words and 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 actually is the poem itself all about this kind of subversion of capitalism? So it's about um, you know the, the the consumption of art and how we can kind of bastardize that consumption and turn it into something of our own um and the, 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 and there there there's language all the way through that all the way through the poem that, that that hints at that so you've got choice um uh clandestine loss the loss of a cassette um the the, the tape deck's teeth uh you know there's there's a there's this sort of strange antagonism um throughout which is only really operating at the level of the language, not necessarily at the level of you know the narrative or or other um, more <clears throat> prose-based um, uh, techniques. So yeah, I think that 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 that's something that we've that that that, that goes back, harks back, if you like, to um, right. to to what we talked about, and then things like uh, you know the, the, if if you talk about songs modulated by anything other than held breath. <clears throat> the poem is kind of introducing itself as a poem there um, because, you know, once you start talking about breath um, and songs and modulation, then you're, you're probably in danger of poetry. <laughs> <laughs> what, so can you remind us then um, what we, what book we should be reading by him? Um, what's well, the thing I think, we should rush out and buy? Well, I think anything. So that poem's from Kumu Kanda, which was his debut Um Chateau and Windus um, from a, cu a few a couple of years ago now, um, 2015 maybe uh, might be might be 2016, um, 2017 we get there in the end, um, and <clears throat> yeah his new one is Blood Condition, um, again Chateau and uh, yeah as I say out out imminently if not now I've 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 seen people with the requisite photos on twitter to know that that, that it exists and it'll be okay. it'll be a, a it'll be a must read for me in the in the, in the coming weeks all right i fantastic. like this little hint of the fact you annoyed you haven't got it yet that poem reminds me of tintin abbey which i've been reading recently over and over again as nina knows for various reasons but there's a the bit about um you, have you carried that theme in your head these years in the faint hope you might know it when it finds you in a far-flung cafe? It's not unlike um, Wordsworth being stuck in a pokey room in London thinking about Welsh hills. Yeah. Is that a stretch or is that...? No, no, it's, <laughs> no, I don't do that. no it's not at all. And it, it goes back to what we were just talking about as well, about process and stuff like that, doesn't it? I mean, is it, 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 Chingoni could just as easily be, be talking there about, you know, how how one catches a poem or a sentence or the idea of a story or, or any other aspect of, of writing. Um, 
so yeah, it's definitely in there. I mean, that, you know, and, that, and, and I always, I always thought of that when Wordsworth's writing those those kind of lines as well, isn't he? It also gives you something back, I think, because there's something about the sort of uh, nostalgia about mixtapes uh, and having to wind it on with your pants and all that. That's also it's almost been sort of stolen because it's become such a thing that you forget that you actually felt it and it happened to you. Mm. And this poem sort of gives it back to you and yeah. lets you feel it again, which is a nice, generous thing. Yeah. Yeah, I th- because I think one of the strengths of it is that it sort of does resist that kind of, e- like not e- but sort of easy nostalgia. You know, there's mm. nothing twee about it, which no. there can be when we talk about, you know, the, do you remember how things were in our day kind of thing? Mm. Um, and I think he manages to... To, to to veer away from that okay yeah. um brilliant thanks will thanks for that um let's have a bit of music so we're going to have a, a track that the only um chosen which is baby by ben and city okay so that was baby by ben and city um and we're going to turn our attention now to Leonie and her book, This One Sky Day, that um, came out a few weeks ago. I felt when I was reading it, Leonie, was um, there was oh God, a few years ago, um, someone asked, oh, it was a bit of writing by Brian Case, who used to be Time Out's jazz critic, and he said the reason why he loved jazz was because he never knew what was going to happen next. And I had that feeling in your book, um, which was just this extraordinary... <laughs> and it was absolutely a, it was absolutely a great thing. It was the next sentence would appear, and I have would have had no idea that your imagination was going to hock to this next um, to, to, to this next subject matter. And I don't even mean that in terms of the the plotting of the book. I just mean on a very sentence level, it was just it is just so extraordinarily um, original and imaginative and rich i suppose um i was just completely blown away by it um and i just wondered how you managed to write something that had these you know every paragraph has a leap to something else or um a change of direction in it um was that something deliberate when you started out is that kind of how you think or i mean it's uh i just I think, think it's it was probably a reflection sorry go on no 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 it's a it, I think I'm still working out how to answer this question because versions of this have now come up and there's a kind of odd thing that happens after you create a work, particularly since this work has taken a long time to come out of me. It's taken 15 years. Right. So there's something in particular that happens when people begin to consume the work and you hear things about it, particularly things that you hear over and over and over again. You think, okay, well, that must be a thing, right? Because people are saying it over and over again. But you didn't necessarily consciously reach for for that or intend that. Right. I mean, I think this has happened because I do see this quality in the work. And I think it's probably happened because... I was suffering from a very difficult period of kind of, I hate the phrase, but it'll do writer's block at the start of this process. I was very hesitant about who I was as a writer after writing two novels in the 90s. And so I began to free write, which some people will recognize as simply just writing and allowing yourself to go from idea to idea and moment to moment. Um, And 
kind of developed a mountain of about 400 to 500,000 words over a period of years and then yeah. went back and saw what I had and how I could make a novel out of it. This is not usually the way I would approach it. It's just insanity and I don't think I'll ever do it again. But <laughs> what it's done is it has created, I think, a quality of trusting myself to move from moment to moment and emotion to motion. But also I think I'm doing something very specific which may be very Caribbean, which is to kind of code switch and shift rhythms of language and to move from kind of quote-unquote standard English through kinds of the sounds of the Caribbean and people's voices yeah. and back again to allow myself silliness as well, um, yeah. which adds to, hopefully adds to the surreal nature of it and the odd nature of it because it's a country, a made-up country in which people have magical powers happening on a one single day in which those powers are kind of almost becoming condensed uh they're getting more and more intense um for reasons that i won't give away and so all of those things are, i guess together the way that it came to me over a period of years the culture around it and the sounds that it comes from in the back of my head and in my heart i suppose those are some of the things that have caused the effect that you're you're talking about um, in yeah, feeling very unsure, I ended up trusting myself. Right. And um, yeah, that's really interesting because it does. It also comes across as although there's this constant, literally on a sentence by sentence level, I had a constant feeling of surprise, but also there is a very, uh, you know, what you've managed to create is a is a is a world that makes sense in its own way, um, which is also. Um, kind of impressive as well, I think. Did, I think the... that's where a lot of the editing came up, simply because I needed, if it was going to, if it was going to be jazz at a sentence level, then it had to be narrative at a narrative level, you know, it had to yeah. work. I, I, I am in some ways a very old-fashioned storyteller, you know, I believe in things having a beginning, middle and end and having yeah. a meaning. And I believe in epiphany and denouement climax and so on you just have to do it right right yeah. so yeah I, I wanted to take those elements of narrative storytelling and make sure they underpinned any of the kind of more airy-fairy experiments with language or ideas and I, you've actually hit the nail on the head for me is it's that balance that is what's so great about it is the balance between those traditional narrative techniques and this wonderful extraordinary rich um world that is so full of um kind of humanity and smells and um things rotting and an extraordinarily large amount of sex that pervades the whole this book continues really. to make me laugh everybody accuses me of putting large amounts of sex in this book and i keep going really where one man's large is another woman's not that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I uh, know, please tell me more about that, Matthew, because I'm continuing to, as I said, I'm learning how people receive this. I'm like, this is a long ass book and there's not that much sex in it. What is everybody talking about? I think that it just feels like there's a promise of sex with it in <laughs> every paragraph. Ah, well, then that's a different thing, you see. That is a different thing. So it's not there's a great amount of sex in it, but there's just there's a feeling that's, that's kind of pervasive throughout it. Um, I guess maybe it's to do with bodies as well. You know, the bodies in it are yes. sweating 
or you know or you know behaving in peculiar ways and um a physicality i guess to it Mm. Um, that makes sense to me because i do see the world like that i see both the world as a kind of constant opportunity for sensory experiences but also yes sex can take place at any moment as well so i don't just mean for me i mean in general (laughs) it's one of the reasons i write about sex that kind of fade to black or go blurry and then that removal of the sensory or the sensual or the sexual and then everyone's kind of waking up the next morning has never even since i was a little girl made any sense to me because i thought that patch, that moment that you've just blurred out and pretended didn't exist could have changed the whole world and you're not even referencing it. You know? Yeah. Out of, so out of your four or 500,000 words, what elements of it were in that that you were able to mine? What was the bits that you were able to mine and put in the book? I think it became clear to me that I was writing about love, which is just so vomit-inducing, it's ridiculous, but nevertheless, that was just constant and there different layers and flavors of it so I was particularly interested in writing not only about kind of love affairs that have gone wrong but very specific kinds of accidents or problems like um you know the one who got away is something that always causes people to kind of wryly smile as we all think of that one (laughs) <laughs> and we probably shouldn't be with that one actually because you know and we probably should thank the gods that it didn't work out but it's that one who you know you that you they were married to someone else or you lived in the wrong country and you just you know that so our protagonists are kind of united in that feeling about each other that yeah. they are one that got away but then there are all kinds of other kind of miniature relationships going on. There's a very innocent relationship between Santine and Dandu, who love each other a great deal, are very young and both virgins um, and very nervous about being intimate together, but also very certain about their love in a way that nobody else in the novel, except maybe Romanzo and Pilar, who are a um, gay couple. But, that you know, Santine and and Dandu are so young and yet they're so sure about their feelings for each other because to my mind they're friends you know they've become friends but she but they're both very innocent and naive about sexuality and yet she has this backdrop of tremendous sexual assault and when I say tremendous I mean just happening to her all the time as a kind of punctuation of her background so I and and then we have you know another relationship which is a primary one which is that um, our protagonist our male protagonist has lost his wife he's she's died this is the anniversary of her death when we meet him and he is waiting for her to come back as a ghost to haunt him so there are lots of things going on and that certainly came out of the four hundred to five hundred thousand words that, that there were relationships that. I wanted to explore and look at and, you know, kind of stand in contrast to each other as well. And, and the male protagonist is, is called Xavier and he is a, a Machinaeus. I don't know how you would say it. Ah, uh, now, OK, so this is something that I feel like I should put out as a press release, how to say all of these words I've made up. So it's Xavier, to my mind, and he is a Messinus. <laughs> there you go. Um, he is a Messinus, which means he's a master chef. He's chosen by the multiple gods to cook the perfect meal the one that you need, not necessarily the one that you think you want, for every member of this made-up human community. And he has a restaurant. His torn poem restaurant, yes. Yeah, he has a restaurant that he invites 
a group of people to each night and cooks them the perfect meal. Yes, he does. And he is one of the, his ability to create food and create um, flavour from his hands is one of the many, um, you describe them as cores, those magical um, mm. abilities that everyone on the island has. Um, yes. And they manifest themselves in a kind of, you know, there are um, physical ones and there are mental ones. Yes, and there were kind of small ones and almost insubstantial ones and, and big ones. So I set up deliberately, this This did, again, come out of the 400,000. Uh, I became increasingly amused with the idea of magic as hierarchy. So, you know, yeah. you might you might just have great hair and that's your magic. Someone yeah. else might be able to time travel. And you're expected to make your cores, your magic, kind of the center of your life, the center of your spiritual life, the sense of your practical life. You're expected to go and find a, what, what I call a master teacher to help you to cope with your magic. You're even supposed to make money from it. Like everything is connected to that moment that the Obia women in this society who are kind of like uh, witches um, discover what your magic is and then everything goes from that. But if your magic is that you just have no flatulence, First of all, it's really hard to work out what is this child's magic, right? And then what can that possibly mean? And how yeah. can you make a life from something so tiny, something so inconsequential, something so gross, you know, or not gross? Yeah. I guess if, if you don't have flatulence, you're not gross. So, But I love that idea, and that kind of sustained me throughout the narrative as well, my constant amusement at, at what different people would do with different magics if they had it, the way that we might compare, you know, we might, you know, you know, we have babies now and we go, oh, my baby's tall, my baby's pretty, whatever. Can you imagine if you all had different magic and your nosy neighbours are kind of going, well, what did you get, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I liked all of those ideas and they existed and made it through. 2,000 million billion drafts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's listen, some, let's listen to some music, which is um, Chant Rasta. You've chosen Chant Rasta by um, Warika Hill Sounds. Um, so let's listen to that now. And that sort of feels like a song that um, exists within the world of the book. Um, it, it's a kind of Caribbean um, a folk song with um, a kind of primitive drum beat and a sort of brass top, top line over the top of it. But it feels like it could exist within the world of the book. Is that why you chose it or not? I think that's why I chose it. It feels very much to me, even though I think we have to be careful with the word primitive is very loaded. I know. But, I just, as I um, said, I'm thinking that's the wrong I know, one. I know, baby, and I could hear it <laughs> under your voice. <laughs> but anyway, I, I do know what you mean. But but the thing that I think, the reason I've chosen this is because I listen to it. It's Nyabingi sounds. And this is kind of a largely a creation of, of Count Ossie, who incorporated all kinds of influences from traditional Jamaican um, Afro-Jamaican religions and practices um, called Kumina. So, that, you know, we could have a whole program devoted to these kind of uh, traditional forms. But 
Uh, to me, this is the sound of Jamaica. This is the sound of many parts of the Caribbean, the drum being particularly important, the idea of the heartbeat. Um, and I listened to a lot of Nyabinki drums and a lot of Kumana sounds while I was writing. So Anna was saying earlier that she needs silence. I actually need to be in the middle of busy cafes and to have um, music in my ears. And so I did, a, I did a lot of listening to oceans <laughs> and storms. Right. Uh, if you read the book, that will become obvious why that's relevant, but also listening to sounds like this. And, and it was actually, uh, Warika Hill sounds are one of, it feels to me like the few outfits that produce a lot of traditional Jamaican music. Um, yeah. There's the sound of drum in that particular one. The Kumina drum is almost hypnotic. It's the sound of my childhood. Um, and it was really important to me to create a world in which this was possible, these sounds. And is there um, Caribbean or Jamaican folklore in the book? Um, not as much as you would think. The idea of the obia, I, I grew up, and many people in Jamaica grew up with a sense of kind of witchcraft, the obia man, usually it is. Right. Um, and the obia man was presented to me in childhood as a kind of very scary, very African, because you'd be surprised at how anti-African some Caribbean nations can be because we were taught to be so under colonialism. Um, you know, you can't love your own Africanism and your own ancestors and also be slaves. The two things are difficult to, to correlate. But that aside, what happened is that um, I suppose we, I, what I wanted was a sense in this space of all of the possibilities of different cultures coming together and so there's no one mythology here, but Obia men in particular become Obia women. I think I did that flip purposefully. You know, I, yeah. I thought I want to put the the uh, the women in charge, and the Obia women in this are, as I said, in charge of magic. They identify it, they curate it, they um, help you to run your life on the basis of it. I like the idea, and they're called the Obia Fatidik, and the word Fatidik is simply a word I made up starting right. deliberately with the word fat because I liked it and I thought that was fabulous. And I wanted this kind of um, group of older women who looked at, look a bit like insects being in charge of, of everything. Um, so no, not a mythology of Jamaica, but certainly coming out of a kind of seed of, of memory from childhood. And what was the inspiration behind the toy factories? No, oh. <laughs> um, that's a nice question. Um, in Poppy Show, toys are magical and so, but in subtle ways, like they just kind of work in ways that you wouldn't expect them to, or they make you, they leave you feeling particularly gratified or um, satisfied after you play with them. Um, and they are being sold by the island's governor, something that has never happened before in this human community. They're being sold to the outer world. So this, not very subtle idea that magic is being sold and that really it's a metaphor for capitalism threatening this, this space. Mm. Um, so they're toy factories because they've become factories. To me, those two things don't go together, you know? Yeah. The juxtaposition of toys, the innocence associated with it, the first time these toys are made in this human community, they're just kind of around the place and kids have them, you know? The idea of money is shifting and changing maybe you have a few coins but there's no real price and that the fact that that's become kind of mass marketing it's now factories there are several factories in on the islands 
and that they're mass producing magic is supposed to be kind of gently disgusting yeah um but it also gave me the opportunity in that scene which i'm quite fond of actually which is one of our characters and these just walked through a toy factory admiring the toys and that was just me having fun with language and yeah that's might be in a magical toy factory <laughs> yeah and that's a lovely scene um there's the whole uh, conceit of it of doors being open. And when she gets to the factory, the factory's open. Um, mm. And she walks around. Um, but what, and at what point did you realise that you that the world kind of came into focus for you and you felt that you could turn this into a kind of coherent novel? How far, how far in would you say you were, you were writing it for 15 years? Maybe half the way in, I did something specific. Um, I decided I needed a kind of visceral body experience of walking because all of our characters, to a greater or lesser extent, are walking across this archipelago during this one day. And I suddenly thought, I want to do that. And at the time, I was really broke because no one had commissioned this 15-year-old ridiculous experience. So <laughs> I had no money. Hmm. I would have, if I had money, gone back to the Grenadines, the uh, archipelago uh, associated with the Grenada, which is where I'd spent some of my childhood, but I couldn't afford that. So I went, right, are there any islands around here? Are there any archipelagos? And I said, like, oh, the Isles of Scilly, which of course are off there. Um, yeah. uh, so, so I thought that was a great place to go and explore. I don't know if any of you have been to the Isles of Scilly, um, but also there's a connection here that is that also felt to me like a wonderful indicator, which is that the word poppy show in Jamaican patois really means foolishness, silliness. Right. I thought, oh, God, they're the Isles of Silly. No, that's far too much of a coincidence. Right. <laughs> Spelled S-C-I-L-L-Y, but still this delighted me. So I ran off to the Isles of Silly and I walked the circumference of several of the islands of the Isles of Silly in order to have a kind of physical feeling of the journey that the characters undertake. None of this necessary, of course, but it felt necessary to me. And that's when I think the structure and the space and the world of the novel kind of clicked into place for me. There's a kind of uh, very large hotel, I think it was at the time, on a cliff top. You know, to me, that's the torn poem. That's Xavier's yeah. restaurant. Um, there's something tremendously comforting about the fact that I could do the circumference of a couple of the islands in the time that I wanted to play around with in the novel, which is 24 hours. Um, yeah. Everything seemed to click then. And how many years ago was that? Ah, I don't know. I'd have to go check my notes. Maybe 2008. Yeah. Wow. Maybe. I went three times, I think, in total. Yeah. I got um, stuck in a bog. I nearly got hit by a plane. <laughs> it was a very strange experience. Was that at the same time or was that two different things? <laughs> no, this was, this was the same time um, on the same day. I, I swear I nearly died several times trying to wake I'm not an outdoor person. <laughs> and I just struck off and began walking around the Isles of Scilly. And I hadn't factored in their small airport, their airstrip. And so genuinely had someone kind of almost yelling at me from their small plane to get out of the way. Um, I met a man who was out for the day. Um, he And we'd had a very pleasant chat walking with each other for maybe half an hour. And then he just kind of idly told me that he was out on um, a day trip from the nearby prison. 
and I didn't want to ask him what his, his crime had been. Um, and it turned out like rape or something, which was really like, well, have a good day then, bye. You know, I was followed by a pheasant that had very interesting conversations with me about narrative form as well. So I, I had my own little adventures in the Isles of Scilly, which I think, while none of it made it into the book, certainly it all felt, it all had that same kind of level of possibility and ridiculousness and an right. undercurrent of mm. sadness and darkness. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing book. Um, Thank you. I hope, it's, uh, I hope it's really successful. I'm sure it will be. Um, I, I think we've run out of time for this uh, episode, this um, monthly uh, episode of the Rough Trade Books Club. So I will just thank everyone. Um, so thank you, Anna Wood. Yes, yes, more, more out on May the 5th, May the 6th, May the 6th it is. Um, yeah. This One Sky Day um, by, Leone, by Leonie Ross is out um, right now. You can read it. Um, thanks, Will. Your novel's out in a month or so. The Paper Lantern and Nina, thanks for um, all the great things that you're doing. Um, <laughs> thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. It's Th been a great show. Yeah, thanks for yeah, coming really on. Really lovely speaking to you all. Thank you. Yeah. I've been, so I've just been, I feel dreamy listening to Leonie talk about her book. Yes, it's really <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Thank you. And, yeah. and what a great name for a for a restaurant. Bar the torn spot, poem. The torn poem. Yeah. I thought I've, you might agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go and change the pub sign at my dad's pub right now. <laughs> and even more wonderfully, it has it's fruit in there that if you open it inside, they have um, poetry, but only kind of torn poems, not not fully furnished, fully finished poems. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's perfect, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna listen to um, "No Ordinary Love" by Sade. Um, mm. Was gonna see us out. Um, so thanks, everyone, and thanks, Hugh, to our producer for working his magic behind the scenes. See Thank you in a month's so time. Much. See you all. Bye. Thank you. Bye.